the coronavirus is touching upon everything. It's touching upon how we live and as a European community, it's exacerbated the relative levels of rich and poor. So COVID brings up some major, major tensions in the EU. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in the Rocket FM studios in Stockholm, Sweden. Time for episode 13 of Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic with me and Mark Vandenbosch. On the phone line, we'll touch upon a couple of uh, topics, Mark, that I think are dear to your heart. Baseball, we'll talk about Asian baseball briefly. And also, uh, more featured on this episode is European Union, because we'll be talking to Mark Reinhardt, a professor of international relations at the Department of Economic History and International Relations at Stockholm University. He's also a senior research fellow at the Europe Research Program at the Swedish Institute of International affairs and the European Union will be the topic. We'll be talking about uh, not just how the EU is assisting and managing this crisis, but also how this uh, in some ways, in many ways, represents an existential crisis for the European Union itself with a lot of the, the tensions that have been brewing for many years coming to the surface as uh, countries in different parts of Europe are dealing with this crisis in very different ways and are being affected in many different ways. So uh, Mark Reinhardt will talk about that and also look at some of the bigger picture geopolitical aspects of this crisis with uh, the European Union as a lens. So uh, Mark, what do you got for us today with uh, baseball in Asia, something we talked about on an earlier episode of this podcast? Right. And a lot of side of things. We talked a few weeks ago about how Taiwan had reopened its baseball season and a lot of the players and the teams take the field and perform, do their thing. However, they had to do this in empty stadiums and the fans consisted of cardboard cutouts and they were robotic gear uh, playing drums to give it a little ambiance in the empty stadiums. All this was televised, so it was still fun to watch. However, this week, they have had such a success in controlling the corona pandemic that they feel that it is now time to let people back into the stadium. So that's a very exciting development, even more exciting on some level because this is going to be televised worldwide. South Korea has also kicked into gear its baseball season and signed a contract with ESPN for world distribution and TV rights. And so anybody in the world can actually watch this every day. And I think we're all going to become experts in terms of Asian baseball stars. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, players from Asia that are filtering their way into the uh, Major League Baseball in the United States. And now perhaps are returning the favor by having uh, American viewers watch uh, baseball in countries like uh, South Korea and Taiwan. Also some environmental news you want to get to as well, right? Yeah, there's been some very positive side effects of corona for the environment. We've seen pictures from space over China, over India, over New York City, and even evidence on the ground that the air is far clearer. You can see mountains in the distance in India that you haven't been able to see for decades. So that's a great thing. However, there's another aspect of this. It's a little bit darker, and we've obviously ramped up considerably in the manufacturing of PPE, or protection gear, to the point where we're producing billions, billions of units on a weekly basis. And a lot of this gear is actually intended for one-time use. That's fine. It's understandable. It's obviously something we need to do short-term. However, we haven't really developed a way of processing all this waste. And unfortunately, studies now suggest that a lot of this stuff a lot of these plastic wastes are ending back in the ocean. Plastics in the ocean has been one of the big issues in the environmental circles for a couple of years now. I'm sure this is going to accelerate that trend. 
And you know, Mark, uh, speaking of stuff that ends up in the water, I was reading an article the other day in uh, Doggins Nehetter about uh, a project that's uh, going on right now. It's actually being led by a colleague of mine at uh, KTH at the water center there where they're uh, using wastewater as a way to trace the spread of uh, COVID-19. I guess there's some trace amount that ends up in, in the wastewater, not in concentrations that are enough to really affect people. I'm not even sure if that's a way that uh, COVID could be transmitted through the water. But there is definite traces and you can see where there's concentrations in Stockholm to use it as a way to provide early warning when the inevitable next wave comes and when you start seeing uh, rising levels of uh, COVID concentration in wastewater, we'll know that there's a second wave on the way and we can take uh, appropriate measures. And you know, also, I'll try to get uh, David Nielsen, the uh, leader of that project, try to get him on the show. Once again, uh, Stockholm acting as some sort of laboratory for pandemic mitigation strategy. That second wave that everyone seems to expect in the fall is obviously a great concern already in Sweden. Just to use a local benchmark, we've hit 3,000 fatalities. 3,000 might not sound like a lot uh, compared to the United States, which is getting about 3,000 per day. But in a country the size of Sweden, it is uh, quite a high number. I think that Sweden it does rank in, I think, the top 10 countries per capita in the world. In Agnes Tegnell, the face of the uh, Swedish response is getting more and more international attention. Just the last few days is on uh, Fareed Zakaria's show on CNN. He's been on uh, The Daily Show and uh, really becoming not just the face here in Sweden, but he's becoming really an international face for the uh, response to the coronavirus uh, pandemic internationally as well. And about six to eight months from now, I think he'll either be declared a hero or someone who made a very grave error. Yeah, you put the number six to eight months out there. I mean, that, that is one of the big questions. When do we uh, when do we call this a crisis? When do we sort of close up shop and say that the crisis is finished? After the end of the first wave, will it be waiting for the second wave and beyond, or who knows? In other news, of course, on the EU front, we have our expert coming up. And I think one of the things I'm really interested to hear, I don't know if he addresses this, but Emmanuel Macron, the French president, is a big supporter of the EU. And right now, the EU is under pressure. And he talked in an interview not long ago in the Financial Times about the need for the European Union to be a political project, which brings stability to a region that obviously has had a lot of conflicts over hundreds of years? Or is it going to be only a market project for financial gains? I like the way you say Macron. Well, I should be able to say <laughs> Macron in the right way. He's one of my compatriots. Did, what, what, is my that, guys. What, what does Macron mean? Is like macro? Does it mean like big? Or what, what, is that, what does the word mean in French? Uh, it's not like macroeconomics. <laughs> no, I don't think there's any. I suspect it's kind of the name of a local village. Uh, where once upon a time his ancestors were stonemasons or something. I don't think it means anything else than that. Okay, just just wondering. I think it's time now to really get in deep uh, on the European Union aspects of this crisis. We're going to talk about the EU as a crisis manager, but also as a political system under extreme fire right now, uh, internally and externally. And Mark, we're going to talk about some of the geopolitical aspects of this and also some of the uh, internal tensions that are uh, coming to the surface in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. So without further ado, Mark... Pronounce a Jew in, in good French, please. That's a French word, right? Uh, it's yeah, but you know what? I've never heard the French people say it uh-huh. <laughs> so, without any further adieu. Here's Mark Reinhardt from Stockholm University here on Corona Crisis: Once Upon a Pandemic. Well, the question about preparedness at the EU level actually, you know, breaks down into preparedness, you know, literally in Brussels amongst the EU institutions, and then you have to look at preparedness amongst member states. Crisis management is mainly a member state responsibility in Europe. The EU is there to back up member states, to support them when they're in need. So when we we speak about preparedness, you really have to look at these both sides. And I think one of the things which has come out is that different member states were really not particularly well prepared for this kind of event, despite the fact that we'd seen uh, MERS, we'd seen SARS, uh, we'd seen Ebola 
there is a tremendous amount of dithering at member state levels and a lack of willingness to jump the gun and get supplies in for preparedness purposes. And people are kind of took a wait and see approach at the national level. Now, when you're talking about Brussels, I, you know, I think generally speaking, Brussels was fairly well prepared because there's quite a lot of activity in different areas of Brussels where they are they look at crises uh, all the time. There is a unit, the civil protection unit. There's the crisis management mechanism. There are aspects of Brussels where they see their role in helping member states as very important, and that's what they work on on a daily basis. That's not true in all areas of European cooperation, right, when it comes to financial policy or when it, when it comes to trade issues. Those areas were not well prepared for an event of this magnitude where literally, you know, it was shutting down trade, it was shutting down movement, economies have essentially been put on hold. You know, it's true that we haven't seen anything quite like this before. But, you know, the EU response, I think it's worth noting that on January 29th, very, very early, um, the European Commission had a press conference where they announced that they were triggering their own internal crisis management mechanism. Um, and that went relatively unnoticed as countries decided what they were going to do and how they were going to do it. So uh, in terms of successes and failures, if you will, well, I mean, one of the things that is very true about European cooperation is in a, an acute situation or in a crisis, time and time again, the lessons show that member states turn inwards first. They first look at taking care of their own people. They look at um, hoarding the resources that might be required. They're very reluctant to share things. In some respects, that's a human tendency. <laughs> and, and some could even argue that that's something that member state governments are responsible for doing. So that's what they should be doing. But history also teaches us that you know within a short period of time, they start to realize that what they want and need to be doing can't be done properly without more coordination. So then they begin to turn towards uh, Brussels to say, right, right, we need to get together and do things uh, together. So that was obvious in you know Italy's first request for medical supplies, which was rejected by members, other member states in the first instance. But typically, a few days, I think a week or two later, uh, Germany then began to ship ventilators outside of Germany to other EU member states. So there is this typical dynamic of look, first looking inward, then realizing that, oops, we really need to be coordinating in order to, to do this effectively, to, to manage crises effectively. And that has once again showed its face. We've got to remember that the European Union is only as strong as its member states want it to be strong. So the idea that you know the EU should be rushing in to manage this crisis is really unrealistic, um, especially when member states are first and foremost taking care of themselves. So I think it's a bit disingenuous of critics to say, well, the EU didn't act quickly enough. There's this famous saying now that being disappointed in the in the that the EU is not helping quickly enough on health issues is like buying a cat and complaining that it doesn't fetch a stick. Uh, you know, your your expectations are wrong. This is an organization which helps member states coordinate when they want to, when they need to. It's not going to take over control of things for them. And especially in the area of health, we have to temper our expectations. Member states have made very clear that they don't want a very strong EU role in health. That doesn't stop them from complaining, of course, because crisis management, as we know, is full of blame games. That doesn't stop them from blaming the EU for not doing more. But when it comes to organizing, designing the EU institutions, they designed it so there wouldn't be a very strong competence. 
uh, in health. So, you know, it, there's a lot of critique, there's a lot of finger pointing going back and forth. Some of it might be fair, but some of it I think is, is unfair and, and suggests a kind of misplaced expectations of what the EU should be doing. I mean, there's some are saying that this is an existential crisis for the European Union, not the pandemic itself, but the, mm. the response to the pandemic or the way that uh, countries have kind of closed their doors and looked uh, inwards. Would you, uh, would you agree with that sort of assessment? I think it, you know, if the COVID virus the world over has exacerbated and, and really starkly revealed a brittleness or a weakness in the international system before coronavirus came, uh, we were dealing with an international community which didn't were seeing less and less value in international organizations. We saw big powers like the United States and China looking with great skepticism towards international organizations. We saw many countries taking a me-first nationalist perspective, especially on the economy. Europe was the same way. I mean, Europe had its own problems with um, democratic backsliding in the eastern neighborhood, with Brexit, uh, with the migration crisis, you know, kind of tearing the bloc apart. When the coronavirus hit and the, the resulting COVID-19 disease, you know, it, it sends two messages, really, doesn't it? One is that this affects all of us equally. Neither the rich nor the poor are going to be immune to this. The other message that it sends is, well, actually, a bit of the openness that comes with the EU, a bit of the internal market dynamics has had an effect in exacerbating this crisis. Um, that's for sure. And responses at the member state level, even the local level where it, it has to happen. Um, I mean, both of those arguments are essentially accurate. Uh, it affects us all, but member states really have to, to take the mantle and do what they need to do. Um, individual countries have to take care of their, their populations. So I think, I think it's too early before we can say whether or not COVID-19 will prove to be an existential crisis for the European Union. It could go either way. I think that history shows us time and again that the EU survives these crises. And it usually comes out stronger, perhaps not necessarily from an overwhelming societal enthusiasm for tighter European cooperation, but for member state governments realizing that, okay, in the future, we can take some steps jointly to prevent these kinds of crises from hitting us as badly as they did before. So I actually am optimistic about this. I think that when the, the initial dust settles, that member states, and again, this is a lesson of history, uh, the member states will return to a cooperative setting in Brussels and they'll say, what can we do to prevent this happening the next time? How can we stockpile supplies more effectively? How can we put more money into research for related vaccines? How can we think about you know acting more concertedly and, and collectively to deal with this so i'm not convinced it's an existential crisis i do think there's much bigger issues facing the world which can kind of intervene here trump in the U in the white house you know this shift in geopolitics in china and the u.s these are in some respects going to shape how coronavirus affects the international system more than the coronavirus itself I mean, going forward, where do you see, as you say, it's too early to tell, really, but where do you yeah. see if there's going to be more um, blame games, finger pointing inside of the EU, which dimensions do you see as being the places where that could erupt? I mean, there's a lot of talk about the north and south, different perspectives on the financial uh, relief packages coming up. Where should we look to see where things will go one way or another in the, in the uh, weeks ahead when it comes to the internal European solidarity? One of the more interesting things about the COVID-19 pandemic crisis is that 
it doesn't allow you to ring fence or kind of bracket this problem as a single problem. I mean, even migration, you know, as big as a crisis or an event, however you want to describe that, as big as it was, it was something that could be dealt with in a in a corner of, of Europe, it could be dealt with by a, a corner of the administrative apparatus in Brussels, and it could be kind of kept separate from other areas of European cooperation, like monetary union, fiscal transfers, trade policies. Those could kind of go on as normal. So any tensions in the migration crisis, although they were big and although they were major and although they affected individuals' lives to a great extent, they could be kept in their own area of negotiation decision making the covid 19 crisis affects everything the eu is doing so when you ask how is this going to affect you know tensions how is it going to exacerbate tensions different you know existing conflict lines in the eu it's going to affect all of them you know we're seeing that right now with the aid package that the european at European level, they're trying to put together, um, you know, basically to big bazookas of cash to to spray onto different member states to help them to recover. As you know, there was a big negotiation in Brussels, multi-day negotiation. It ended in a kind of partial success with some loan guarantees and some money from the central budget and, you know, no corona bonds. So no raising money based on EU capital assets. And that, of course, brought up the idea, the age old tension of the extent to which the EU should be. Well, there's no better way to put it than redistributing cash amongst its member states. You know, that's an issue which has come up again and again and again over the past decades. And it normally comes up, it came up lastly in the uh, Eurozone crisis. Uh, Again, that could be kind of separated away. The coronavirus is touching upon everything. It's touching upon how we live and as a European community, it's affecting the relative and it's exacerbating the level, the relative levels of rich and poor. It's affecting and it's bringing home the fact that weaker parts of Europe are going to affect all of us when it comes to, for instance, healthcare system sustainability. So COVID brings up some major, major tensions in the EU. I think, again, somewhat optimistically, that this could be the uh, kind of the vanguard or the point at which some of these Gordian knots are cut. I'm not, we we came awfully close to solving the common bonds question. You know, which is basically can in some member states borrow on the security backing of other member states, an issue which has been around, as I say, for decades. We almost cut that knot recently. Um, we didn't get there, but it came awfully close because of Corona. And I, so I think that, yeah, the tensions are there on that issue. The North and South is a major issue, right? Because, you know, Italy with relatively high borrowing costs is very happy to, <laughs> to borrow money at, at Dutch and, and German borrowing costs instead and essentially putting those burdens onto the Dutch and the, and the Germans. And, and, and the North doesn't want it. Sweden doesn't want it. But, you know, we're facing fewer and fewer alternatives in this world. Uh, in a world where these transboundary events like Corona, major geopolitical conflict between the China and the United States, a growing number of, of, you know, it may not be pandemics next time. It might be something else. I mean, gosh, you could name a bunch of different things, a digital Pearl Harbor or solar flares or the other things that we talk about in our workshops together Um, could be one of those things but whatever the case i think europe is slowly like a kind of reluctant 
participant are slowly realizing they, they're going to have to put their money where their mouth is. Cooperation has been high on the agenda symbolically and normatively for decades, but member states back away when it starts to hurt a little bit. Well, I think they're going to have to start taking those steps to really act as a functioning unit, and coronavirus is making that clear. Of course, the European Union system is quite different than the one in the United States. But uh, certainly we can see some parallels here with different measures being taken in different places, perhaps a lack of leadership and coordination from the top. How would you compare, Mark, the response to corona in the United States versus the European Union, given these differences in the systems? Well, you, you're right that in some respects, you know, both are kind of variations of federal systems. Both have constituent parts to them. And in Europe, of course, you have you know proper nation states who are the constituent units. But still, you have a, a group of political units trying to work together in some sort of consistent fashion. And you've seen in the United States that different states are taking uh, different measures. The southern states at the moment are trying to you know restart their economies again and to ease restrictions not unlike you see some states in the EU beginning to take those steps, while other states, the Western states, the United States, are, are taking a little bit of a tougher stance on those and keeping their measures in place and even banding together, I was interested to see, in kind of groups of Western states operating in a coordinated fashion. Europe has the same kind of constituent d- dynamics that are taking place. One thing that absolutely fascinates me is the politicization of risk and science and and risk assessment right now. It's happening in the United States. It's happening in Europe. The relationship between uh, different groups of scientists supporting different kinds of politicians in their judgments as to when to reopen economies. I think there has always been, and you've known this very well, there's always been a politicization of expertise in politics. There's no such thing as purely objective science. There's no such thing as a purely neutral expert. Um, But now we're really seeing those kinds of politicizations whipped up by politicians. And if you looked at what Trump is doing in the United States, and if you look at what some European politicians are doing, um, you see the same kind of dynamics. So there was a time, one could argue, that you could rely on uh, scientific consensus as to what we should be doing. And um, politicians who deviated from that scientific consensus could, you know, were heavily criticized or could be taken to account. That consensus, in many respects, is still kind of there in the United States and still kind of present in Europe, but is being uh, fragmented and cannibalized by politicians in different parts of the spectrum in order to get what they want done. Those are two very similar patterns in both Europe and the United States. So we'll have to see. Both blocs have been doing things that the others have, have been a bit angry about. And of course, Trump did his unilateral travel ban on European flights and Europe reciprocated. And so, you know, the, the lack of coordination there is kind of striking, considering the history of transatlantic relations that you know, those two blocks, let's be honest, essentially ran the international system for many, many decades through a very coordinated partnership. As we all know, that's really disappeared and deteriorated. So, you know, where does that leave us not only on COVID-19 coordination, but also in the future in dealing with how the rest of the world is going to emerge from this? You know, what do we do with Africa? How does the world respond to China? And China's both kind of a response to the, to the pandemic there and its respect for rule of law and civil liberties there. Um, you know, this is really up for grabs. And 
in all of that, the kind of breakdown of what we once thought of was a Western consensus in the international system, not saying that was the best way to go about this, but that's kind of how it happened for many decades, you know, brings up the question of what comes next, of course. And here we can move towards a discussion of Europe's role kind of post-pandemic, if we're allowed to talk about that <laughs> this early and with, with all the suffering still taking place, I think that initial shock has kind of worn off and people are looking towards the future and all the major long-term implications of the, of the COVID virus. And, and what would be Europe's role here? I mean, one could easily make the argument that there, from at least a Western perspective, there's no other game in town at the moment. Let's put it this way. The European Union is very well placed believe it or not, to emerge after the post-pandemic situation, perhaps better than any other regional grouping, at least, in the world. Because as chaotic as it seems, as, as the, the number of different voices and kind of um, centripetal forces in Europe that seem to appear, Europe will stay together more or less through the crisis. It will emerge in an international setting where if the international system is weakening and regional cooperation is the only game in town, Europe is going to be probably the lead in that kind of arrangement. And I think if its own member states don't have any other options, the WTO at a standstill, the UN at a stalemate, um, you know, even NATO not doing much at the moment, I think, you know, they're going to see the EU as their only mechanism for cooperation in the years ahead especially after you know COVID and all the effects that's going to have, it'll kind of be the last regional grouping stand, the last multilateral setting standing, to exaggerate. I'm being overly dramatic here. But it will be at least look like a form of multilateral cooperation. And I think there's a, a real prospect that states will invest in that to handle future challenges and problems. So that's a bit a sweeping account here. But I do think it's it's useful to think about Europe's role post-COVID and what that will be. Is it going to be a disaster, as you, as you quite rightly introduced? Is this an existential threat which will tear apart the EU? Um, and I say, I don't think so, not considering the state of the rest of the world right now. <laughs> it's pretty bad. You know, in terms of multilateralism, Europe is still functioning and functionally fairly decently. That's a very interesting thought, Mark. Um, where, where, would, where would leadership in that case come from if Europe was to take a more, um, let's say, a unified approach to, to world affairs? Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like it succeeded mm -hmm. so much in doing that uh, to no, this point. Um, no. Where would such an initiative come from? Would it come from particular national leaders or from the European mm -hmm. Commission? Or where, where would you find that? Traditionally, it's, uh, it has to be a, a coalition of like-minded leaders. Um, it's often been the leaders of France and Germany, who empower the European Commission president and kind of the three of them, if you had to generalize, the three of them can become quite a force in, in world affairs. You're absolutely right. You know, it's been a long time since uh, Cole and Mitterrand were on the world stage and we haven't really seen a replacement of those two. But I think, you know, barring that, you still are likely to see or you could see, um, you know, two, three or four national leaders uh, working very closely to empower the European Commission to speak on behalf of Europe in a lot of global forums regarding the future state of 
the UN regarding uh, you know the organization who needs a lot of help right now is the WHO, and I think the EU ha- can do a lot to backstop the WHO and their fire from Trump at the moment. Uh, but also more broadly, you know, the international um, trading system, the multilateral system at large, it's the leadership would have to come from that. Uh, from that kind of constellation, you know, a grouping of leaders who enjoy a, a measure of support at home, who have a shared vision about what Europe can do, and who are not afraid to take some risks on behalf of Europe. Sure, you can call it a long shot, but it's not out of the realm of possibilities, not least when, again, the rest of the world is on its knees um, after COVID, and there needs to be cooperation to help revive not only Europe, Uh, but also the rest of the world, I think that could be an opening for a kind of more robust European cooperation. Okay, Professor Mark Reinhardt, thanks very much for joining us here on Corona Crisis Once Upon a Pandemic. Thank you.